we celebrate things like grit and hustle culture because that puts the pressure of success on the individual rather than the accountability of the failure on the system. I believe that your personal life and your professional life are inherently linked. And when you do the work on both sides, you can become the most successful version of yourself. This is a place where wisdom meets leadership, where success meets spirituality. Welcome to Do the Work with Denise Love Hewitt. Today I'm sitting with Emily Best. I met Emily through WIMPS, which we'll talk about in a second. She's become a friend, a mentor. She is the founder and CEO of Seed and Spark, a unique organization that accelerates the cultural impact of storytelling. Seed and Spark's crowdfunding platform and national education program have helped thousands of bold storytellers raise tens of millions of dollars to bring to life entirely new stories. Emily's had a lot of pivots throughout the course of her company, which we'll talk about. And I'm just pumped for you to share all the wisdom because you've already given me so much. Thanks, friend. Yeah. So I want to talk about WIMPs because when I first started my company, someone introduced me to you and you invited me to WIMPs and WIMPs was this Women in Moving Pictures Salon, which was just at the time a very small group of women in your apartment talking about issues in Hollywood. And for me, having been someone who was in corporate Hollywood and sort of disenchanted, which is why I started my company, I walked in this room, and I don't know how to explain it. I felt equally held and equally intimidated. Like there were all these brilliant thinkers in a room expressing all these things that I had felt and who were far more successful than myself. And it just felt like the most incredible thing to be a part of. And I also want to, like, I have a lot of gratitude to you for including me in that because I think it really also shaped so much of the work that I went on to do through my company. Um, and so I want you to talk about like what was the impetus for starting it and you know it, it grew into a, a, its own thing but like how like what was the like why were you like I need to do this thing? Um, so just because as soon as somebody hears it they're like wimps it was the women in moving pictures salon. <laughs> um, and it started very high level. So I had lunch with a very experienced Hollywood woman who had been on like tons of TV. She was very well known. Um, I met her at a film festival and we just sort of had like, she had made a really personal piece of work for Sundance and um, I had met her on a panel and there was just like a vibe. And so we had lunch and she was like, I, what she said to me was, I don't want to work with men anymore. She had had a lot of really, really terrible experiences. She was eventually one of Weinstein's many accusers. She had had really bad experiences and she's like, I'm done working with men. But she'd been in the TV space for so long. She's like, who are the women like DPs and directors and whatever? And I was like, oh my God, like, is this like relatively famous person asking me for these recommendations? Cause like I collect these women all day. Like, yes, I can introduce them all to you. And so I was about to send out a whole bunch of like intro emails. And then I was like, wait, all these women are in LA. What if I just got them together in my apartment? We like accelerated the rate at which all of them were meeting. And 
Um, Andi Timoner also came. She's an amazing documentary filmmaker. I just got to see some of uh, her new film at, uh, at South By. Um, uh, yeah, producers, like writers, actors, and we all came and we screened this woman's film that she had showed at Sundance and um, and everybody, like, I don't know, there was just a vibe, right? Um, but what I did at the end was I said, could we go around and could you tell everybody what it is you're really looking for? Like, what do you really need? What's your What's your big need? And so everybody went around and said, you know, this is kind of what I'm trying to do next. And naturally people started offering things and the help started flowing. Um, and then everybody looked at each other and said, wow, that was great, let's do that again. So I did it a second time. They wanted to invite some of their friends. So it got a little bit bigger. And because the first time we screened a movie, the second time I brought in someone to talk to the group. Um, and I think it was maybe the third or fourth one that like Joey Soloway came uh, when they were like just in the process of um, uh, getting <clears throat> transparent off the ground. Um, we had all, just like sort of taking advantage of being in LA and getting people to come speak to this group of women. And uh, very quickly, <laughs> It snowballed. And this thing at the end where people were asking for what they needed, everybody said, hey, could we get on like a resource list? Could you put together a Google group so people could just, you know, ask and respond as they needed? And within a year and a half, is that right? By 20, yeah, but within a year and a half, that list was 4,000 women strong. I had to max out the invites to the monthly salons at a hundred people. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know if you remember, but like my entire living room, the entire dining room, all the way up the stairs, like we would just, we'd be sitting on top of each other everywhere to continue these conversations. And then it just became a resource list where anybody could write. My favorite thing that ever happened in WIMPs is that like 9 p.m. on a Saturday night, somebody was like, please don't ask. I need a rubber chicken by eight o'clock tomorrow morning and the stores are all closed. And that I, I wrote back to them like, please tell me how quickly this, you can get this solved. And it was like, like nearly instantaneous. And that was when I was like, all right, this. And then we started having men reach out to us and say, hey, can you post these jobs to the WIMPs list? And it became a place where five to 10 women were getting hired into entertainment jobs every day. It was really, really exciting. Um, I'm, I'm still heartbroken about its demise, but, uh, but yeah. Yeah. I met some of my closest friends through WIMPs and it was just this experience that not only like, I think like in a lot of ways grounded me in a mission, as you know, cause you're an entrepreneur trying to create change in Hollywood as I was, it's a very lonely place to be when you're speaking out against a system that doesn't frankly want to change that much. And so being in a room where people saw the future that I saw was some of the most nourishing times I had because it often felt like I was taking crazy pills or seeing something that no one else was seeing. And I was like, no, no, I'm seeing very clearly. And all these people are echoing what I'm seeing. Whether or not that change transpires, you know, ultimately largely wasn't up to me. But we planted real, you planted real seeds. And I think that's a, like the seeds of change are so powerful. We don't often see necessarily the loop close, um, but you planted so many seeds in so many women. And I just want to acknowledge that because I think it has much deeper like roots than, than you even know. I really appreciate that. Denise. Yeah, it was, it was fun. I, 
I went to Sundance again for the first time in a couple of years for obvious reasons. Uh, and I ran into so many women who were original WIMPs friends and colleagues. And, you know, the, the rally cry is always the same, which is like, bring it back. And I was like, well, I would if um, if we could bring back the in-person component. I think it, you know, it it couldn't survive a lack of in, in-person connection. Like pretty quickly after the pandemic started, it spun out and like, I think you remember there were like some pretty racist rants and there were some like turfs that had gotten in there and there was no way to weed them out at that point because the original part of WIMPs was you would bring somebody to WIMPs who you would recommend other people work with. And after a while, people just started adding friends to the resource list and we didn't have the in-person anchor of the responsibility to one another. Because I saw some people's minds get changed in that room. I saw women of color speaking in, calling in white women in that room and, and really had them changed. And the, and the people on the list who did not know that was a part of it, um, uh, yeah, I mean, like, I, I, what I should have done in retrospect is as soon as the pandemic started, I should have, like, paused it or something um, because I didn't totally understand that it was, like, a structurally vulnerable thing. And, um, and we started to get a couple of reports that, like, people went to work for jobs that had been posted to the WIMPs list and did not have a good time or were not paid appropriately or whatever. And weeding those folks out was really, really challenging. Um, and so ultimately we just decided to shutter the list um, because at that point, so many other amazing things had grown out of it. You know, Women of Color Unite had grown out of it and like all of these other incredible things had spun out that I, I thought were kind of taking care of the ecosystem in a particular way, but like we could not risk continuing to be a vector for harm. Um, and so we shut it down and people, so many people since then have been like, bring it back. And I'm like, you bring it back. I'm busy. I got two kids now. Like <laughs> somebody else can manage it. Um, but the, the one thing when people have sort of thought about bringing it back that I've said is it has to have an in-person component. Like if you are going to do community building, I no longer believe that can exclusively happen online in really like safe ways that don't open you up to vectors for harm. It doesn't mean there can't be. Uh, really positive online communities with norms and rules, but in terms of what we were trying to do, it needed to be anchored in real conversation. Well, people are really different in person than they are online. They have the safety of being behind a screen to behave a certain way, and it's a lot harder to do or say things than when you're in front of someone. And I think you're exactly right, which is in a lot of ways, it became like sort of the microcosm of like what society is or like what happens when you deal with people that you're not having these conversations. We're just talking at each other, not to each other. Even though it was heartbreaking and devastating of its demise, I actually learned a lot from its destruction. Me too. <laughs> a lot. Like it was, and it's like painful that, you know, we have to like learn from pain or harm. But I, I saw a lot of things come to play and I was like, oh, actually... There's so much to learn. It's so hard to elegantly grow a community and keep everyone aligned to the same values. I mean, it's the same thing when you talk about a business or anything else. It's like that, those core values and how do you grow a culture and have them remain intact is a really, really challenging dance. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately 
the challenge that we're undergoing generally that technology has exacerbated is that um, communities are like this, the kind of community that we're building could never operate at scale. That's not the point, right? Like the truth is like maybe for the first year, year and a half, um, we really were kind of committed to attracting uh, people who were values aligned, who were challenging the system, who were themselves willing to be challenged, to be self-aware, to grow, to do the things they needed to do. And then it just became a place that people saw they could get something. Oh, I can go there and I can get jobs, or I could go there and I can get crew. And as soon as they saw it as that, it was over. And like, that was on me. I like, I, I am, I'm, I'm sure as a sort of subset of, of privilege, frankly, is like naivete. Like, I don't, this was always funny um, when we were building product at Seed and Spark and people would be like, oh, well, you can't build it that way because somebody, you know, somebody will come in and do something nefarious with it. And it would just never have occurred to me that somebody would think to do that. Um, and that is an ongoing challenge. And it was certainly, I just, it didn't occur to me that people would show up and, and use it, use the list or, or post the sort of things that they would post. Uh, because I don't, I, I didn't interact with that side of, uh, of society interpersonally. You know, I also had women of color who were like, how did you not see this coming? Um, and so that was, I mean, that was a big learning for me. Um, and, and I think understanding the care of infrastructure that has to be taken in order for it to go. And part of that is to say, no, we won't scale beyond this point. Right. And that's a hard thing to do when everything around us is being built for infinite scale. Now we talk a lot on this podcast about like, what is enough and like, what are we, what is really the goal? And the big issue around, you know, when you're talking about a lot of venture backed businesses is misaligned incentives. And so when you are scaling at all costs, no matter what, you're going to lose pieces of your core values. And so that's really like the goal is understanding and being intentional and thoughtful about the process. And I think I'm with you, like there is a level of privilege where like we probably didn't see that coming. And as a woman of color, of course, they saw that coming where that's a lot of what I learned too, was like there needed to be much different sort of guardrails in place to protect those people, um, which is the same thing in society, right? The same thing in culture. It's, it's not, it's, it's, what as white people we can sometimes, you know, take for granted or miss. That we often take for granted or miss, indeed. Yeah, I, I think um, the the thing that I really like took away from that going forward was um, how to build sort of a, a coalition of folks who are able to kind of see the things that I, you know, that, that others might miss, um, but who are also sort of willing to do the work. I, I think um, the big, yeah, the big takeaway at the end was like destroying it was the best thing to do for the community. And like let it, letting there be a page one rewrite, letting people carry forward the things that are really important, um, letting the infrastructure that had grown out of it um, continue to flourish. I think I think that was clearly the best thing for it. Um, 
and we're 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 so obsessed with like winning generally um i mean i think about this in relationships also that this sort of like larger story that the only successful relationships are the ones that last forever and i just don't believe that um i'm i'm <laughs> i'm i'm very interested in everything has a time and i think wimps was really important for a time and i in some ways i think it was, you know, it was an essential safe space and resource during the Me Too movement. Um, I still have a list of guys we still need to go after. Um, uh, it was an essential resource list in the Me Too movement of ways that we could actually um, hold space for each other when our harm was surfacing in very public and personal ways. Um, but that as we moved into the next phase, it was not equipped uh, for um, for the social uprising. It just wasn't. Um, and it, it, if I had sort of continued to try to make it, especially in the absence of the in-person meetings, I think it would have, um, just driven a lot more harm than good. So, well, what I've always admired is your ability to hold yourself accountable and also admit when things are mistakes. I think it's, it takes a very, um, evolved, secure person to be able to do that. And thank, I mean, thank you. I don't I, I, I don't take on the monikers of evolved and secure. <laughs> this is not my internal experience. Sure. But I think <laughs> that like when you we talk about leadership and the leadership we see in the world, most people don't allow themselves to be that honest or vulnerable. And so whether or not you feel that way, that's that's what you're putting out in the world, which is the ability to say, I can make a mistake, hold myself accountable and learn from it and move forward versus denying the mistake or denying that, like, you know, there was a learning or denying holding yourself accountable, which we see all the time in, you know, our capitalistic world. People just don't take responsibility. And we had a girl on the podcast who has a founder as well. And she's like, if we're outsourcing responsibility, we're not taking responsibility. And so I just think it's such a big thing in leadership that you do across the board beyond your company, just in who you are. And it's always been something that I have looked to um, and, and deeply, you know, uh, want to live my life that way too. But you've been a big sort of model of that for me. So um, I think I just want to say that because I think you deserve to know that. Thank you. I appreciate that. So I want to talk about Seed and Spark. Okay. So how long have you been running Seed and Spark now? 10 years. And Emily is one of the only people who I can say has probably been through, like, she has been through the ringer. Like, this has not been, and every company is hard, but I think particularly when you are building an entertainment tech company, there is a depth of hardship that people don't really understand. Like, it's, it's and when you started a time when it was also really sort of like like when I started a little bit for me, it was this, no one was even looking at that space. It wasn't even a thing. And so you started it as a crowdfunding platform for film, but you've recently had some pivots. Can you walk us through the highlights of that and then what sort of made you decide to pivot? Yeah, sure. I mean, so when, when Seed and Spark launched, there was a sort of magical moment in history, which was the convening of four, I mean, lots of conditions, but four that I think are particularly um, influential during that time that I like to call like creator economy 1.0. Um, and that was uh, crowdfunding rose out of the ashes of the 2007-2008 financial crisis. Um, Canon, the camera company, put a full frame sensor in the little 5D photography camera, all of a sudden making 
the recording of high quality digital cinema affordable and accessible almost overnight. And it's funny now because we were like, oh my God, we can shoot in 720 and now your phone shoots 4K. But it was special at the time, okay? <laughs> like we still had flip phones. Um, and, uh, well, I had a Blackberry, uh, RIP. Um, <clears throat> and uh, social media was on the rise, but at that time, the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world were pretty nascent as far as like wide adoption. And they were using something called the open social graph, which the, I think the only platform that still has the open social graph is LinkedIn. Um, and that means that like, uh, you don't only get to see what your friends post, but what your friends engage with and interact with. So if they like something or they comment on something, you can also see that too. And it was like an amazing uh, tool for virality um, at that time, especially if people got really excited about something like a crowdfunding campaign. Um, and then the last piece of it uh, that I think is um, important, obviously, is the move to streaming. Like. Broadband had finally gotten wide enough that we weren't just thinking about streaming our music, we were really thinking about streaming our movies. But Hollywood was terrified of streaming movies because they were making so much money on DVDs, right? And so Hollywood was adopting, moving into the streaming business from a really defensive position, um, which deeply influenced why it was so behind the eight ball on all the things that we thought they could do better at, like data. <laughs> um, so, that was the that was the like environment in which we um, we were moving. Now I will say that like this era was being lauded as the great democratization for creators. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's happening again now. Like we haven't seen this shit before, um, and uh, like a lot of things we call democracy, it wasn't actually working that well for all people. So if you went to South by Southwest, where I just came from in 2013, and you saw panel after panel about like this great democratization of content, all the panelists looked really similar. In fact, I was often being brought in to bring some diversity to the panels. Just doesn't count, right? Um, but so, uh, so, Seed and Spark was really interested in how can we use all these tools to accelerate the impact of creativity and how can we make them work for the people they're not working for yet. So crowdfunding was working super well if you came from well-resourced communities or communities that had like a sense of arts patronage as a part of their core, but you got outside sort of the major cities or really even just the major entertainment markets and it simply was not working the same for everyone. And that was really what we were interested in impacting. So um, our core goal when we launched Seed and Spark was how can we make crowdfunding work for people outside major markets? Um, and so instead of leading with all the startup-y things like growth marketing, we led with education and I, my ass was on the road for five years. I was going to 40 to 60 cities a year teaching workshops and trying to really help creators understand how to use and navigate the tools that were around them, oftentimes in order to navigate around real structural barriers. Um, and that required a different way of coming to work. So the, the way that we built our tools and our processes were pretty different. Um, but as a result, we have the highest crowdfunding campaign success rate in the world by more than two and a half times the next closest platform. 
We have the largest audience per project, the largest project size by three and a half times the next closest platform, and more importantly to me, the most demographically and geographically diverse pipeline of creators. Um, and so that was really the, the impetus and, and it was really um, what drove the way that we decided to grow. I feel like I need to stop there. I can move on to like why we have taken this pivot. No, we'll, we'll get there in one second because before we yeah. get to the pivot, I want to talk about, which is A, you've done a lot of, like you've accomplished what you set out to accomplish, right? Like that's huge in and of itself to be able to be like, wow, we've been able to support all these creators. We've given them tools, which is really like the point of like, give people the tools. Then you create like a real meritocracy. Like democracy, if you don't give people the tools, it's not a democracy, right? And so through this process, while you're building a company, educating people across the globe, you're also fundraising. Oh, do we have to talk about this? We do. <laughs> because I want, my whole goal is I think that one of the things, the big, one of my personal failures, I look back and I'm like, why? Like, what, it, when I look at my journey, one of the things was is that I walked into my journey with zero belief that I would fail. It wasn't even remotely on the radar because everything I'd done up to that point, my success was contingent upon my hard work and my ability to show up and push and get things done. And then when I went through my fundraising journey, it wasn't a failure of me. It was a failure of a system. And so I want to talk about it because I want people who admire or romanticize the entrepreneurial space to understand the reality of what you are walking into. Because I think you can still do it. If that's your choice, go for it. But no one really prepared me so I saw the data, and you, but you think, you know, the whole time I thought I was like the exception to the rule. I was like, okay, yeah, this data exists, but if I just am doing this, I've never failed before in my life, like why would I possibly fail this time? And I just think it's really important to prepare people to understand the journey they're going on, and then it's up to them to make the choice they want. But, but I look back and I'm like, I wish someone would have told me a little bit more clearly what was actually going to happen. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it's tricky, right? Because it's sort of like parenthood in a way, which is to say, um, if somebody's really excited to become a parent, it's like sort of a form of emotional terrorism to tell them what they're actually signing up for. Do you know what I mean? Like, all right, if that's what you want to do, I will support you. I will recommend all my favorite tools. I will send you the books that really helped me. I will give you access to the like parent groups that helped me. But like, what am I gonna do? Be like, oh, you're gonna regret that decision more than a hundred times a week in different ways and also not regret it and also be so glad you did it and also be so excited by it and all the things. But like, it's a little tricky in some respects when somebody's like, I'm gonna do this thing to be like, I'm gonna crush your dreams. like. I, I think it's, um, you have to sort of tread carefully in some ways. And so I really try to think about like, what is the context that maybe people could have to go in with their eyes wide open about what they're going for and how can they, how can we help them maybe not repeat the same mistakes that we made, right? Um, because like, you know, I have on occasion written about and published what my actual experience is, which I know you're not supposed to do as a founder because they don't want they, they don't want you to know how this, they don't want it to get out how the sausage is made. Um, because I do think that um, culturally, 
we have not created, well, structurally, we have not created a whole lot of options or onboarding paths for people who want to build businesses. And a lot of businesses that probably shouldn't be startups or maybe even shouldn't be technology companies are being built that way because that is the infrastructure we've built. That's what we value. And we also know that it is a very small subset of people who get to succeed there, right? By design. Um, they're just like, we did not build the infrastructure for other kinds of innovation to emerge that don't have billion dollar price tags attached to them. We don't value it as a culture. And so the question that I often ask people is like, what do you really want to be doing with your time, with your day? What is the impact you really want to be having? And if this is the best and biggest way to do it, great. Like, let's work out all of the other things. But I have on occasion just effectively dissuaded people from building um, a, sort of a story about how this is a billion dollar business just so they can go raise venture capital. Cause that's actually what most of us end up doing is we end up trying to cram our dreams into this like very narrow infrastructure that doesn't actually serve the goals that we are trying to achieve. Um, and, uh, Never was that more true. Like the shit that I have said in investor meetings over the years, because I believed that was what we were going to have to build is sort of comical to me now. And what I learned over time um, through a, a whole lot of uh, mistakes and hardship and like abject sexism in the room um, is how to seek out values alignment before I get in the room. So, so that, that's the thing that I think um, in the beginning, you're just looking for like who writes checks and then you go meet with all the people who write checks and that's fucking torture because nine, this is what we know. If we're going to get 2.2% of the allocated capital, whatever, now it's less. Like I was 1. like 1.9. I was like, it's 1.9. Yeah, it's actually gone down. You know, that's less than it was in, I found an article from 2000 six that featured my mom. She was like a boss ass bee in, uh, no, it must've been before. No, sorry. It was 96. Uh, and she was in like some local, like literally like Sacramento publication, but just like standing at her desk in the shoulder pads and the blazer, like looking boss and talking about this, like these women who were like forging a path ahead in, in Sacramento. And it had a quote in there that like women, uh, only get 2.5% of venture investment. I was like 2.5% 25 years ago. And now it's less. It was 5% <laughs> in 2015. Oh, was it? Mm -hmm. What a year. Yep. And then it just um, went downhill from there. Great. <laughs> Doing great. Um, all of that is to say, like, if you just show up trying to get checks from, from anybody who writes them, like literally 98% of that is going to be torture. And so going in with a real process and understanding of like who is likeliest to actually align with your, um, uh, your vibe and your desires is better. But I think functionally it's so broken because it's forcing people to build businesses that they might not build. And I think it's actually sidelining certain innovations we might achieve if 
uh, if we had systems for other kinds of ways to build and grow companies. Um, and like, you know, if you, people will be like, well, there's, you know, SBA loans and it's like, cool, go look at who really gets to benefit from those. Or like, oh, there's bank loans. Like, yeah, cool. Look at who gets to benefit those and what, what amount of capital that is. Like the, the high risk, high return capital model is uh, considered so high risk because they ignore a lot of really amazing opportunities and has to be so high return because people are greedy AF that like systemically it's forcing people to try to build businesses that are not the things they want to build and I believe not the things that are actually going to achieve the greatest innovation. That also burn them out in the process and then also turn them into liars in the process. I mean, it's it's just very bad incentives. I, but I think one of the things I want to touch upon is that I'm with you, which is like looking at who has the values that align with what you're trying to build. I think that can be also a complicated path because a lot of people purport to be one thing and then you're in the meeting and you realize that, oh, I'm sorry, I thought you your whole mission of your fund was about inclusion and then I'm realizing, oh, it's not. Nothing about it is just what you project out to the world. And I think that was one of the things that was deeply heartbreaking for me was that you go in this meeting thinking we're gonna speak the same language and then you realize, oh, it's just a show. It's just performative. And that broke my heart time and time again because there's all these funds charading to be mission-oriented that weren't. Yeah, I can think. <laughs> One time there was a woman's angel group that only invested in women entrepreneurs that I made it through the first round and then they dropped me out at the second round because I was too pregnant to show up to their pitch in person. <laughs> You're like, what? Yeah, I mean, it, like the structural challenges and the the sort of bias practices persist kind of regardless who's at the helm of things. That's not, um, it's that we tell these very specific stories about who can succeed, what success looked like, how we get there. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm learning that like even with my investor group, the ones who are like really war-torn operators have a kind of a greater demand of how much torture I should go through in order to get to the other side. There's a little bit of that like, you know, I suffered and like, this is what it takes and whatever. And it's like, no, that's why I built a community of people who can pitch in and help because we're going to do things differently together. And there's such a sort of shit rolls downhill uh, practice in the space. And that's the thing that makes people um, uh, celebrate hustle culture and grit as, as opposed to the things that actually get you there, like community and support <laughs> um, and rest, you know, like, you know, we, we have, we celebrate things like grit and hustle culture because that puts the pressure of success on the individual rather than the accountability of the failure on the system, right? So if you didn't make it, you just didn't have enough grit. If you didn't make it, you just didn't hustle hard enough. When in fact, the system is designed for me to fail. And the only thing that will help me overcome that is the effort and collaboration of a community. Yeah. I also think that when we force people to be that laser focused in that capacity, we also strangle our dreams often. And you get to maybe the goal that you set out to, which is fine, you can check that box, 
but you limit the possibility or the opportunity for maybe greater outcome. I mean, that's truly what I have seen with like the more that I have taken a step back and been less like intense and focused, which is like, listen, I mean, we sold like 10 movies in a year at my company. Like it was like insane. I sold them all myself and I was doing, and you're like, while growing and whatever, all the things. I'm like, I look back and I'm like, wow. I was like, I cannot even believe I was that person. Like, ugh, like, you know, it's so intense. And now as I took a step back, it's like all the things that you tell me if I work hard and I don't stop working, I'll make more money, you get reap these benefits. And last year I was like, I'm just really letting the universe take the lead. And it was the first time that like I worked less and made more money. And it was such a, a that I, I was that way because frankly, I was just recuperating and so heartbroken from the loss. I didn't have any energy or anything to give. So I was like, I can't possibly jump into that space right now because it's, it's not possible for me. But the learning of that was, oh my God, I've been doing this all wrong the whole time. They told me if I did this, I would net this. And I did, just did the opposite and I netted this. Yeah. We moved to a four-day week and we had our largest revenue year ever. <laughs> awesome. Well, apparently they're trying to legislate that now. I wish they wouldn't. And I'll tell you why. Um, because... Uh, there's, well, because capitalism, but mostly because um, a four-day week takes a totally different approach to work and it takes some time to like build and, and adopt those tools. And um, companies that don't want to do it anyway are not going to do any of those things. They're not going to adopt them. And then they're going to be like, see, we're failing because of the four-day week. And then they're going to turn it right back. If you adopt a four-day week, because four-day week, this is what someone said to me and it was so helpful. It's a fitness. It is a totally different approach to work, how you do your meetings, how you resource your people, what kind of responsibility everybody has, how you do reporting. Um, all of it has to shift around making sure that these are the four days that really work for you. And um, chances are like you're not having, you know, afternoon yoga breaks for your team but it's also because you're not running them so effing hard, right? Um, so we do we do 32 hours a week, no change in salary, right? Um, same amount of money, fewer hours a week. And um, it is a fitness. It's fitness. So interesting. Uh, that's, that's I never thought about that, but that's actually a really, that's good for people to understand. Is like you can't expect to work the same way on four days and yield the same results. So let's get back to what inspired sort of your pivot from solely crowdfunding to moving into sort of this new era that you're in. Yeah, um, 2018, we had launched a streaming platform uh, in 2016 out of Techstars. Uh, we were all of a sudden facing the identical challenge that our creators were starting to complain about. And that was this. Um, if you are a, a creator or if you are in the streaming business, um, by 2018, really the only way that you were getting to people was marketing through social media and like SEO and search channels, digital marketing. And then you were streaming on streaming platforms. And our creators were coming to us and saying, no matter how successful we are, <laughs> We are getting marketed on social media and we are streamed on streaming platforms and we are now being delivered via algorithm because gone are the days of the open social graph. We are now being delivered via algorithm to people who already look like us and already think like us. And that's not why we make work. 
And similarly, the Seed and Spark streaming platform was like, we're trying to reach the people who need this stuff, not the people who are already going to watch this stuff anyway. But like, find me a digital marketing algorithm that really helps you do that, right? Um, and that, that makes it really, because what people expect online is things that agree with them. That's what they expect. They expect things that agree with them or things that enrage them. That's it. But we've also, the, the beauty, like the cool thing about streaming, right, is it gave more options, there was more choice, you had more sort of quote unquote agency. I mean, yes and no, because you, what got made wasn't necessarily the most merit, meritocratic space in the world, but that's what happened. But before that, we had this one size fits all engine where you'd go to the movie theater and you'd go to watch TV, you'd have a limited amount of things. And that was really an interesting time to, when it was like, we did not use that medium well enough, you know, like for good because you had this megaphone to like all of the country or all of the globe. And that's, I don't know if people know the case study, but I think it was in like the seventies or the eighties where they put like the designated driver in a sitcom and then it completely decreased drunk driving because now there was like something that we taught them to use to sort of, you don't have to drink and drive. And so we had this huge educational tool at a time when it was a one size fits all. And then that gets disrupted. And so then what happens is you have these niche sort of shows. And of course, like the niche audience is the person that's going to be drawn to that piece of content. So then how do you then reach the people that need to see that? I think it's one of the big issues of the, of the content culture we live in. Yeah, I, I think it's one thing to say like, oh, we're making stuff so that lots of different audiences can see themselves represented. But that's not really what's happening. They're making stuff so that they can specifically drive content towards those audiences so they can keep them or acquire them as subscribers. And then the belief, the persistent belief is that then they just want to see more of the same stuff that already agrees with them. That's effectively how the algorithms are written. And so our creators came to us and they're like, well, it's great. We're, we're reaching the people who look like us and think like us. Cool. But that's not why we make work. We make work to change people's minds and challenge their worldview. And we are stuck in an echo chamber that we don't know how to get out of. And there's no incentive right now in the Hollywood uh, streaming stratosphere to really change that for any reason. Right. Like there's a there's a real group think about what people are looking for online. And OK, fine. So. We started looking at where could we possibly meet audiences at scale that uh, aren't all exactly similar. And I have to tell you, I remember exactly where I was standing in our office. We were trying to do a design sprint to like figure out how to get around this. And I was like, hold on. The problem set is how do we deliver films at scale to audiences who do not identify as the audience for this work? without using social media or streaming. And I remember being like, I don't know, I don't think we have a business. Um, but I went to all of my advisors. This again, I'm going to go back to community. I went to a bunch of my advisors and I was like, what, where do we start? And one of them said, did you know the workplace is like the most diverse place most people are in their lives? If you could figure out how to deliver films into the workplace, you might really have something. And so something sort of clicked for us there. Also, I had been hearing about these enterprise contracts, like what does an enterprise contract look like? And that, that I like the idea of a $250,000 contract rather than trying to make money three ninety nine dollars at a time. Um, and so uh, 
So we started doing research and we did, we designed a six month research project that um, we did in the spring of 2019. We spoke to 350 corporate leaders across the DEI, C-suite, everybody sort of interested in the like culture and learning space inside a company. And we came away with some pretty clear learnings from that. Uh, the first is that nobody likes corporate training videos or thinks they're particularly effective. Um, and the second is that companies were tackling really, really big challenges, right? So belonging, sure, innovation, leadership, retention, engagement. Um, pretty much every product is online. Uh, every workforce is in some senses distributed, whether that's across multiple offices across the country or now distributed like every individual. Um, building shared culture, shared understanding, shared fluency, shared behavior is harder than it's ever been. And you have the most generations working side by side, the most diverse workforce working side by side. Like it's as hard as it has ever been. And we're just pretending like the way that we did it before is going to get us the next mile. Um, and so um, we felt like there was a real opportunity to design something that could deeply engage folks and do what movies do best, which is build shared fluency, shared cultural understanding, shared reflection. Um, and so we built Film Forward uh, really to help replace the landscape of boring corporate professional development with deeply engaging experiential learning that could drive individual team and corporate outcomes. And that's just what we did. And we launched, uh, you know, a beta version of it right before the pandemic. That was fun. Um, and then with the social uprising of 2020, companies were throwing money at kind of anything that they felt like would in some cases help their employees and in other cases probably shut them up. Um, and during that time, we were really able to learn a lot about the difference between those two companies, right? So we could figure out who we really wanted to design for, which was the companies who really wanted to do things differently going forward. Um, and, uh, and we also discovered that the best format was short film. And what's cool about that is there's there's no market for short films, right? There's no like you make a short film because you want to, because you need to, because it's a calling card for your career, because it's all you can afford to make. You make short films for a lot of reasons. You don't make short films to make money off of them. And they're an inc as such, they are like artistically a brilliant unit of cinema because they're typically just made entirely with like love and dedication and authenticity because you don't have all the people that you would have in a feature film or a TV show coming down and like nitpicking little things. They're just these like amazing artistic pieces that stand on their own and it actually makes them really great educational tools. Um, because they make people really feel things and they're not a three act structure so, so to, to some extent, um, cinema really uses half of what they got and the other half is in the, is in the viewer's imagination. Short films do that like times 10 because you don't have the backstory and you don't have what comes after. You just have this moment in the middle and the rest is left for you to wonder about. And unpacking that wonder is an amazing way to get teams talking about really challenging things that they face or really different 
new behaviors and contextualizing them and collectively sense-making. And that's a thing that's lost in all this shit. Collective sense-making that isn't interfered with by an algorithm or a bad actor or misinformation. It's just collective sense-making. Um, and so we built Film Forward really around this sense of shared reflection, shared fluency, shared sense-making. Um, it has three times the engagement rate of traditional video platforms. Um, we are working with some absolutely incredible um, national nonprofits, arts organizations, Fortune 100 banks, like you name it, across the board. And my favorite thing is that people will say, oh, I watched this short film as a part of Film Forward, and then I brought it home and I watched it with my family, and we had a different kind of conversation around the dinner table. And like, that's what the creators wanted. But oh, by the way, even our smallest contracts pay in royalties to the creators nearly 200 times what they could make per minute streamed on a traditional Hollywood street platform. So it's, a, it's an opportunity to turn short films into like actual money-making entities, which considering how much, like 60% of what's crowdfunded on Seed and Spark is short films. Like if you can crowdfund a short and then go make money off of it, that's a really, really good tool for sustainability uh, for creators. So that's why we did it, because at, at the end of the day, this was about accelerating the cultural impact of creativity. Cultural impact comes from caring about who gets to tell the stories. It comes from are they able to like do that sustainably and repeatably and enrich their communities with it? And are those stories being leveraged to actually drive impact as opposed to what I think happens so often is like, are they just being leveraged to, I don't know, go up onto a user-generated content platform? I think what I would just want to exclamation point here is that the, what has worked for you time and time again is going back to your core reason of why you did this. The core reason of the mission of the company and what does it point to? So then how do we go back there, right? So like when you're doing the pivot, you're like, how do we actually reach people when what we're doing is not reaching the people we want to reach? And by staying true to that, you were able to find your way through, which now has led you to sort of the, the financial piece that's clicking into gear. But it also took a long time. 10 years. Yeah. 10 and, years. Well, my brother's, yeah. just, my brother's 10 years in and his company is just sort of finding his groove as well. And I think this is the part about entrepreneurship that people really don't understand is they think it's all very, it's a lot quicker than it is. It's not. It's a long haul for a lot of companies. And so what, is, what do you think is the biggest misconception around entrepreneurship? I think there are like uh, a lot of misconceptions. I think um, the idea that entrepreneurship means alone um, is probably the biggest. Like we, we love to laud the sort of like rock star lead singer-ness of, uh, of an entrepreneur, but the truth is like successful ones do not do it alone. They have financial partners, they have team members, they have families at home who have supported them. Like it does not happen alone. Um, and building with great intention around making sure you have the community around you to keep you strong and also cutting out folks who are toxic to the process is really important. And that's part of why the 
the lack of financial options is so dangerous because so many people just get in bed with um, uh, crappy financial partners who don't give a shit about what the what the entrepreneur gives a shit about. And it can be hard to know how to diligence that when you're early on. Um, I, I mean, I nearly lost the company after going through an eight month diligence process only to discover that the people and they were affiliated with one of New York's darling venture capital firms. And they were creeps. They were creeps. And I think they're very glad I've never told this part of the story publicly. Yeah. Maybe one day. <laughs> I know. There's so, it's, so, it's so bad. It's, but I think that's a really good point is that it's not being alone. You build your community around what you're doing. And I just don't, I'm someone who I don't believe any money is worth it at the expense of yourself and your, your dream. And so we take checks because we're desperate because we think that's what we need to make our company thrive and grow. But I am, I know for me, that was the one thing that was beautiful about building it was that everyone on my cap table was like an angel. And even though it was painful to shut it down, I never compromised myself in the financial process. And that is something for me that I, that's, it just, it, we ended the way we ended, but I know that I didn't have to like change who I was to try and build something. Yeah. I think, I think that's really important to, um, to just build a really trusting community. Right. Um, I think that's, uh, that's hard when money's involved always. Um, and good contracts keep friends. Um, but also being extremely clear about what you will and will not compromise so that people can, we can make sort of collective trade-offs together. Um, that's really important. Well, I, we are sadly at time because I could probably talk to you for three more hours, but I'm, we're going to jump into our rapid fire section before I let you go. But this was just such a beautiful summation of the work you've been doing over the 10 years. And thank you for sharing. I just know, I know what you've been through and it gives me the deepest amount of joy to see you like thriving. Thank you so much, friend. Yeah. Okay. Rapid fire. What would you tell your 20 year old self? Don't marry that guy. Dead. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. What is the last book you read? Uh, oh God. Um, uh, what is it called? The Sirens of Titan by Kurt Vonnegut. Mm, okay. What is bringing you joy right now? My kids. They're, you see them right there? They're so funny. They're, they are really tough, but they are so funny. And it's specifically like when they make each other laugh, it's like the greatest thing on the planet. The best. What are you struggling with right now? Well, I have too many jobs. Um, so in the growth of Seed and Spark and Film Forward, I have, I have too many jobs. And um, there's a period where what I really need to be doing is thinking. My, my job is actually thinking. And there is a lot of demand on me to be doing. Uh, and so finding space in there is, uh, is what I'm struggling with at the moment. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? 
Oh, uh, my from my dad, who I think maybe was quoting someone else also. And then it would turn out that Disney went ahead and make us made a song about it. Um, but yeah, in my in my mid twenties, as I was starting to move into the film space and getting really overwhelmed by all the things to learn and to do and to try, he said, "Just do the next right thing right." It's mm, good advice. We have some good takeaways this week. Emily reminds us that not everything has to be scaled at all costs. We need to know what we're building and be able to let it grow to the point it's meant to grow and not force it to grow. Build infrastructure with care. I think a lot of us are moving too quickly to think about the repercussions of some of the foundations of things we've built. This is a really great reminder. Go back to your core mission. When we go back to our core mission, it will allow us to build in the way that is in most alignment with us. The core mission is always the North Star. And of course, I'm going to leave us with community, community, community. We are nothing without our people. Let's not take them for granted. Let's take care of them. I love this one. Community, community, community. Thank you for this. I love you. I appreciate you. And I'm so happy I love you, you so made much. the time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Right, I'll see you soon. Thank you all so much for listening. It really does mean the world to me. If you could take some time to subscribe, not only to our audio channel, which you can find anywhere that podcasts can be found, but also our YouTube with all of our video episodes. If you can subscribe, rate and review, it would make such a huge difference to us. I want to give a big, big thank you to Parentheses Produced, Wine Designs Media, Young Spielberg and Young Scorp Consulting. This really couldn't happen without any of them. This really is the little pod that could. Thank you guys so much and see you next week. Thank you.